You're listening to an Englishman in the Balkans. Welcome to an Englishman in the Balkans podcast with me, David Pecinovic Bailey. In this podcast, you'll get a unique look at life in Bosnia and Herzegovina through my eyes, the eyes of an immigrant. Each episode, I share my experiences living in this often misunderstood country and introduce you to some of the interesting people I've met along the way. From exploring the rich culture and history to discussing the challenges and joys of immigrating to a new country, this podcast offers a thoughtful and engaging look at life in the Western Balkans. An Englishman in the Balkans podcast with David Bailey. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. And if you're a first-time listener, I'm David Bailey, an Englishman in the Balkans. I've lived in the northwest of Bosnia and Herzegovina for over 20 years. This podcast is all about telling stories from this small, heart-shaped, but often misunderstood country in the Western Balkans. In this episode of the podcast, I catch up with a former colleague that I haven't seen in real life for over 20 years. Martin McNee was a young British military public affairs officer back in 1997 when she came to Gorni Vakuf to run a small mobile media team, documenting the life and experiences of the soldiers she worked with for press use back in the United Kingdom. The memories of her eight months of being in Bosnia have stayed with her. Martin's insights regarding my adopted home country are very interesting, as I found out during the recording of this podcast. You're listening to an Englishman in the Balkans. Hello, it's brilliant to be here, David, and it is about 20 blah years. Um, well, um, I, um, I'm just a normal person, really. I, I was a broadcaster and I, I joined the Army Reserves and I got called up to come to Bosnia in 1996, which was one of the absolute highlights of my life. And we'll go into that later, but, um, I I now still work for the Ministry of Defence. I'm no longer in the um, Reserve Forces, but I did nearly 27 years in it. And uh, I'm the Chief Communications Officer for the MOD for the Devolved Nations. So that is Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. And I spend my, my days um, uh, promoting what the MOD does uh, in those countries. So, so that's what I do at the moment, and I'm currently sitting in my my house uh, just north of uh, Glasgow, between Cumbernauld and Kirkintilla, with my cat Dougal on my knee, and I'm really looking forward to this. Martin, how did you end up? I know that you said you joined the reserve uh, forces, um, and that's where we met because we were both uh, media officers. But how did you end up serving in Bosnia Herzegovina in in the mid 1990s? What dragged you? What pulled you? What made you come here right well um i jo- i joined the the reserve forces because um i was i lived opposite um what it used to be called the territorial army years ago it's a very archaic name but i lived across the road from a territorial army center and i wanted to see what it did and you know i was i was quite skint at the time needed some money and i thought yeah that'll do it um but from that uh, auspicious day when I rocked up not having a clue what it was about, I ended up in the same unit as you, which was a specialist media unit, because I worked at the BBC at the time. Uh, as you say, I speak Gaelic and I, I worked in the Gaelic uh, medium programs department. Um, and Bosnia and the Bosnian War and the, the Balkans War um, was constantly in the news. It was just um, 
pictures, footage, reports that would just break your heart. And I, 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 I'm not sure the average person in the street would have understood the background to it. It's a very, very complex background. And certainly nobody took sides. Nobody thought, you know, nobody thought one side was more deserving of victory than the other. And, and basically, everybody just felt heart sorry for everyone. And even more so, given the fact it was so close to home. Um, and quite a lot of people um, my age would have uh, probably have gone to Yugoslavia for their holidays because it was a really popular tourist destination. So seeing this happen every night in your living room, it was just heartbreaking. And uh, I, I was offered the chance um, as a media officer to uh, go over there. And I was coming to the end of my contract at the BBC at the time. And I thought, I have to go and try and do something. I'd heard all about what uh, the UN had done, what NATO was doing, and I joined um, the I-4 NATO contingent uh, when it was about three quarters of the way through in 1996 um, as the uh, media officer, first of all in Split in Croatia, and then I was moved up to Gornivikuf and I worked with a photographer um, as a, a mobile news team. So we were going around everywhere showing people what um, was happening in places where we probably wouldn't be allowed to take journalists. So some pretty hairy places, so <laughs> some pretty uh, full-on operations and uh, some interesting characters met definitely. So I did that for about eight months. What was your What was your typical day like? Because people think when you talk about militaries, that it's all about weapons and it's all about driving around in tanks. But working in the media side of a military operation is completely and utterly different to the perception that most people had. So there you are as a a young officer in a post-conflict environment. And as you said, some pretty hairy situations going on. But what was a typical day like for the young Martin back then? Well, when I was in Gornivikov, which was um, actually the bit where I had most autonomy, um, the good thing about it was that there was never such a thing as a a typical day. Um, Myself and my photographer, we got to basically plan our own agenda, if you liked. We we would be involved in lots of... um, uh, meetings with the the units that were near pa- nearby. We would keep in contact with. Um, we had a point of contact in each uh, military unit to find out what they were doing, what was going on, what would be newsworthy, what people um, at home would want to hear about both their loved ones serving in the armed forces over there, and generally speaking, what the armed forces were doing if they didn't have anybody in it. So, so I would um, I would plan um, about a couple of weeks ahead if I could, um, but where would go, what would visit. But sometimes, you know, a, an operation would happen. For example, they'd find an, an, an arms cache or something, and um, they'd be uh, they'd be an infantry unit getting sent in before dawn to try and you know seize that and on helicopters, and you know I'd be drafted in to to go with them with my photographer and. And sometimes um, there was some quite awful things discovered, um, for example, mass graves and what have you. And we'd be drafted in to help document that as well, not for the media, but for the uh, the authorities. You know, so we, we could have uh, could have any of that going on. But a normal day would be um, get up, have breakfast, look at the weather, <laughs> decide which mode of transport we were going to travel on, whether that be a helicopter, because we were based alongside a, a regiment of the Army Air Corps. 
or our trusty Land Rover Defender 90 with all our stuff in the back in case we got stuck somewhere because the roads then were pretty damaged and bridges were out and you know it was it was the winter tour I did as well so the weather was pretty unpredictable and uh, we would go we would arrive a unit would go out and um, do with them whatever they were doing whether it was engineering fixing the bridges or building schools or whether it was the infantry who were doing patrols in the village or town where they were based we'd go out with them and uh, would just um, document what they were doing, write it up, take photos of it and send it back to our colleagues um, at Headquarters Army in, in the UK. And they had a specific um, team who dealt with uh, all the stuff we did um, out in the former Yugoslavia Um looked at the best outlets for it in the news in the UK, whether that was um, national newspapers, whether it was local newspapers about, you know, the young lad who was out, you know, patrolling Bosnia when six months ago he was at school. And they would send it out. So um, as many outlets as possible in the UK got to know what was happening out there. And I felt that um, that was a really good thing to do because um, it showed them the human side of it. You know, you've got the, the, the 10 o'clock news side of it, which is showing you explosions here and death and destruction there. But um, actually what we were doing was on the ground with the soldiers um, and the public, members of the public, uh, and showed the interaction between them and and how things were improving slowly but surely um, uh, all across the area we had, which was... Um, uh, the Gornivakuf area and north. You're listening to an Englishman in the Balkans. You mentioned um, about going out and not knowing, you know, what was going to happen that day until you, you got your briefing. And you mentioned about seeing some pretty unpleasant things. After all these years, do you still have recalls about seeing that? I mean, as a young lady officer, it must be pretty shocking, as it is to a, a, a young guy to be exposed to things that you never thought you would be exposed to. Has that caused any issues at all over the years? Yeah, I suppose it's caused issues in the fact that I've never stopped thinking about it. I mean, uh, for example, I mentioned having to document things for the International um, Criminal Court. Um, the unit I was um, lodged with in Gornivakuf, which was called the Green Howards, which no longer exists, but um, it, it did then. Uh, we were asked to go and help um, with the uh, dis- discovery of uh, a mass grave uh, near Priador and um, uh, to document what was in it. And uh, and it was uh, quite a lot of um, military personnel who were who had been killed, who had been um, buried there, um, not very carefully. And uh, some of them were still in their uniforms. Um, you could see what had happened to them quite clearly. And that was pretty harrowing. And that, that will never leave me, um, especially since, you know, having them in their uniforms, um, it just brought home to me that they were exactly the same as what I was. I got up that day and put my uniform on and gone out to work, not knowing what was going to happen. And uh, they had done as well. They got up, put their uniform on, gone out to work, didn't know it was going to be their last day and they didn't know they were going to end that day in a grave with all their colleagues. And uh, that really did, not during the, the the excavation of it, because you just get on with your job, but afterwards, when you sit and think about it, you think, um, 
how could that actually happen? And that was happening all over the place. It had happened all over the place for years. I had some really good interpreters that I worked with, um, some really clever women who um, who I hope have gone on to great things, um, who were telling me stories about what had gone on, about uh, atrocities that had happened, where they had come from, how they'd had to run for days on their own, aged 12, to try and get away from people who wanted to do them harm. Um, I was always invited into people's houses um, uh, for uh, hospitality. I found every everybody in Bosnia was the most hospitable people ever um, and uh, got stories about what it was like actually being on the front line in Gornivikov and not being able to stand up um, or else you could get shot through your window, um, food shortages, having to queue, starvation, you know, having to run. I think the, the biggest thing I, I, I noticed um, was the fact that people um, had to basically flee with what they could carry and even what they could carry became too much so it was dumped at the side of the roads and constantly you could see at the side of the roads there was belongings, people's belongings just left there, things they thought they would need and but still couldn't carry. So that stays with me quite a lot as well. Um, it's just the sense of um, terror that uh, people had to just run for their lives, literally. So so that does stay with me. Although it hasn't caused me any issues, it's caused me great sadness. And anything that shows me um, the improvement in people's lives from that um, brings me great uh, uh, pleasure and, and joy, really. You're saying about even in times of stress and times of serious unhappiness that there was while you while you were here, uh, in the country, you mentioned something that yes, the country is exceedingly uh, famous for, and that is hospitality. You cannot come in for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. You have to come in and get the full monte of food and everything. Without giving too many secrets away, I know that you are not a meat eater. This country, this country is a meat eater's paradise on steroids. Um, how did you cope then uh, with a, with a country that is not um, well, it is now, but back then definitely wouldn't have been a, a vegetarian environment. No, I, it, well, I didn't have, I wasn't a complete vegetarian then, but I didn't eat m- much meat um, at all. But being in the army, you couldn't really be in a vegetarian in the army either because they just didn't, they, they didn't cater for it. They they just thought you were being a wimp and, you know, go and eat a steak. So I had to kind of um, get around it um, by eating a lot of chips in the in the cookout, you know, And but you can't live on chips. So I, I, I tried my best, but uh, had to eat some. But um, do you know what I found that um, around about the Gordy Vicuvedia, which is where I was mostly invited to social events, um, People were very short on food. It was still it was still costing like a, a you know several um, marks. You know probably about um, ten Deutsche marks for a, a tiny bit of flour, or you know a little bit of cheese or whatever they could get, whatever they could sell that they weren't using um, themselves from their 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 small farms and things. Um, and you you couldn't really buy much. The shops were bare and. Um, that, that really saddened me. But what actually made a massive impression on me was that every time you went to somebody's house, whatever they had, they gave you. And, and you know, I, I the, the immediate thing you think is, no, I won't eat that because you need it. But that, that would be incredibly rude. 
so you take pleasure in um in uh eating whatever uh, is there and sharing it with them which was um absolutely astounding to me uh given the amount of food shortages there were but um what my favorite thing was was um uh, it's it's very like the Tur- I spent a lot of time in Turkey as well, so it's like burek, uh, it's like the 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 uh, flaky pasty phyllo pie with cheese and spinach in it, because there wasn't much in the way of uh, meat anyway. Um, uh, there was lots of that about, and that has been one of my favourite things that I've I've had, um, and continues to be one of my favourite things that I've had is um, uh, cheese spinach uh, phyllo pastry pie. <laughs> So uh, that always, I always remember that from, from my time there and how people went out their way to give it to me. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you would like to support us and the production of future episodes, then please consider maybe buying us a coffee. Well, if you come, if you come back, which I hope you will, um, at, some, at some time and you come and stay with us, I will ensure um, that, you, that you'll have Sirenitsa, uh, which is the cheese pie. Uh, I'm not too sure of the one with, with the, spi- the spinach, but... I personally, my favourite is uh, krompirusha, which is one with potato. So I think the potato, I think the potato and and, uh, and and the cheese pies will will really give you a flashback. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, you smile about that. This may not have happened, but did you keep in touch with any of those uh, people that you were working back or back then, or has time caused that separation? I mean, everybody, when they go on missions abroad, say, we'll keep in touch. And yes, it is meant so very well. And it is meant so much from the heart. But the reality is that over time, life does take over and people do go separate paths. But did you ever keep in touch for very long with any of the locals that you met? I did for a couple of years with two of the, the, the wonderful women who were interpreters. One was um, a, a Serbian girl and the other one was a Croatian girl. And, um, you know, what, what struck me is that they were both very, very, um, not just very, very clever, very, very similar, um, similar mindset, similar ambitions, um, pretty much the same uh, if, you know, you couldn't tell them apart from being Serbian and Croat uh, at all, which is another thing that stuck with me in um, in, in the, the country as well. Uh, coming in as a, an outsider, I had no idea the differences between anybody, but somebody there could tell me that's such and such, that's such and such, and that's such and such. I couldn't, which was fine, which we were supposed to be completely neutral, which was great. But I digress. Um, I, I did keep in touch with two, uh, two of them for um, several years, but uh, they both moved to America, which I was uh, I was delighted about because um, <laughs> Marta, who was the the, the um, interpreter we worked with down in um, Split, who came out with us sometimes, um, she uh, was writing every week to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was the person that she wanted to um, get her into college, who to give her advice and what have you. And she ended up going to college in America. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with Hillary Clinton, but she was uh, absolutely determined that that's what she was going to do. Uh, I think she got some sort of um, international scholarship uh, and ended up going. And I was absolutely delighted for her. And as far as I'm aware, she's still there. I'm not sure where, but um, I'd love to be back in touch with her, but I'm not sure how to go about that. But um, what I I found from the people that I, I kept in touch with is their absolute ambition to do something wonderful with their lives. They didn't want to just stay in Bosnia. They wanted to go do something and then come back and make the place better. So um, uh, I hope they've done that. And that was the overriding impression I got, got from, from people who wanted to... Um, 
to make something of life. I found that lots of the interpreters, they were well, they were all women for for a fact, and uh, they were all massively clever, and they were all excellent at English. I suppose you have to be if you're an interpreter, but there wasn't anybody I met that wasn't just native level. And they'd all learned it at school and from the TV and from the radio. They didn't have, you know, massive qualifications in uh, in interpreting. And uh, they were all fantastic, fantastic people. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a pleasure to work with them all. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean about the English, especially learning English from films and television series. Um, it's really funny. Uh, I, I'll tell you the anecdote when we meet in real life. It's far, far too long to tell on this podcast. But the, one of the most famous television series ever uh, that is still replayed today, it's only Fools and Horses. They think that Del Boy is the ultimate entrepreneur. Um, and there is even a pub in Banyaluka called the Peckham Pub. It's adorned with all the posters. Local people, when they learn things off the TV, are amazing. I just want to change tack a little bit. Um, recently, you completed... Another university course. I think it is your PhD. PhD it was my wrong. it was my research masters. I've not quite got onto the PhD yet, but it was a research masters. Okay, so so your research masters, and it was based on the Balkans. What was it like to research that, having been somebody physically involved, and what, if anything, changed your attitude towards? this particular region and, in, and and even more so with the country from when you just got off that plane all those years ago in, in Split, most probably not knowing anything about it. What what has changed your perceptions now, having done such detailed research? Yeah, well, I, I did the, the research with um, Stirling University as part of a master's in research, um, which thankfully I passed in, in 2020, late 2020. Um, I was due to come over and see you in summer 2020 as part of that research, but we all know what happened in 2020. So um, that went out the window, but you helped me massively and thank you thank you for all the help you put in um, for that in context setting and what have you um, but um, uh, the the, uh, the overriding um, feeling that I left Bosnia with when I um, when I when I finished my military deployment in um, the middle of 1997 was the fact that um, I from where I was standing was really dubious about about how this country was going to get itself back on its feet. I left after um, uh, I-4 had been in for a year and S-4 had been in for about six months. There was very little foreign investment. There was still hotspots flaring up of um, ethnic violence. Um, People were using Bosnia as... um, a kind of a euphemism for somewhere that had failed, you know. Um, for example, when I when I was growing up, um, it was if, if there was somewhere particularly bad, you know, a particularly bad housing estate or something, they'd say that was like that's like Beirut over there. So it, you know, when the Lebanon um, was was kicking off, it was starting to come into the 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 lexicon that you know oh, it's a bit like Bosnia over there, you know, uh, as a euphemism for somewhere that was an an absolutely terrible state and you wouldn't want to go near it. Which saddened me because it is an absolutely stunning, stunning place with, uh, as I've said, um, lots of people ambitious to do something good for it. But, you know, there was um, massive unemployment. There was not really any utilities to speak of. Um, 
food shortages were still happening people's businesses had you know been annihilated the the um uh, the, one of the the uh, kitchen porters in our, our our camp had been a lawyer previously, um, uh, but you know there was just no, no call for lawyers, but plenty of call for you know general duties personnel in military camps, you know that kind of a thing. So you know that had to all get back on its feet, and I thought that's going to take ages. It's going to take generations. Um, so that's what I left with in my head. Doing the research, um, I wanted to see, the, the whole research, the premise was that I wanted to see how much the deployment of NATO troops and the deployment of NGOs, non-governmental organisations, had done to improve life in the country from uh, well, uh, from 1995 when... Um, uh, the UN handed over to uh, to NATO to 2000. So I had to take a, a specific um, time frame, otherwise it would have taken me forever to do, uh, and look at how things had improved. And in that five years, it was four and a half, five years, I was astounded to find out um, just what had um, happened. It had gone from um, uh, not having anything to the amount of uh, input that uh, the international community put in um, actually having semblance of a health service it had utilities it had communications the roads were getting better the education service was much better they even had a um, a, a nascent mail service you know which at that time uh, was quite important and and I looked at it in my my conclusion about what it was like today and today it's gone from basically not even having enough of an economy to feature on any international economic league tables to actually being a high medium income country with massive um, uh, external uh, investment and looking to be part of the Schengen community. I couldn't have fathomed that when I left. I saw a country that it was still rubble and people were you know, displaced all over the place. Uh, and I think a lot of that has been because of the, what the international community has done. And But I also think that that's a lot of uh, what the Bosnian people have done. And it's a huge credit to them that so many of those who were displaced have come back and, and I've tried to improve it um, and have succeeded in improving it. Um, it is not perfect. No country is perfect. It, there are lots of things going on that um, uh, you wouldn't want to go on. But compared to what it was like when I left the plane, uh, left to go on the plane and split, uh, where I thought it was particularly hopeless, it, it is phenomenal. And um, you, your um, videos and, and podcasts show us what life is like there. And it, it's, it's like any other European country, as far as I can see. Um, you know, one that I would go on holiday to um, when previously, you know, you wouldn't have thought that. Um, so so that it, it, it's, it's amazing. I'm absolutely uh, thrilled to bits and very proud of everything. You're listening to an Englishman in the Balkans. Well, the tourism uh, is now starting to grow slowly but surely. And, you know, fingers crossed. Um, I picked up on what you were saying about education and uh, uh, and also health. Um some years, two years ago, I think it is now, I broke my ankle quite seriously uh, and went into um, a local hospital. Admittedly, it had only been opened less than two years, but the service that I 
that I experienced the quality of care um, was second to none. Um, and when I went back to visit um, my daughter that is still in, in, in the UK, uh, we were discussing that. And yeah, it hit me quite hard, actually, that, you know, perceptions are, don't necessarily become reality, that, that there is this phrase now when perception becomes reality. And the perception of the Bosnian healthcare system was like it's in the dark ages. And I have to say, in some respects, um, uh, the United Kingdom is not cracking up to be uh, what I grew up to think uh, it, it was. And the country, is, as you say, it is coming on. It's it's not perfect. Um, you, you also mentioned about whether it's watching the videos and podcasts that I create or other other content that you can have access to online, that the country has changed from anything that you could have imagined uh, when you got out of your sleeping bag um, all those decades ago while you were here. Now that you most probably will be able to travel uh, and come back, this is, uh, I'm putting you on the spot here, what five places or five experiences would you like to deep dive into this time? Because it's going to be a completely different environment, total freedom of movement. Um, what, what, okay, not five, just give us a couple off the top of your head. What, what would be the first, if, if you, if you arrived at my door and, and, and said, I need to do this and I need to see or do this now. What would that be? Well, do you know what it would be? Um, uh, I would like to go a walk in the countryside because we couldn't do that uh, when I was there because of all the minefields, um, most of which hadn't actually been identified yet. So we had to stay on tarmac roads the whole time. Um, here I was in this country, which looked like something out of, you know, Lord of the Rings, Hansel and Gretel, what have you, the, the most astounding um, scenery and we couldn't access most of it. Um, and uh, I would love to either go for drives and then walks or just a walk in the country. I would also like to go into Banya Luka town centre, city centre, um, because uh, there was nothing open there when I was there. It was a ghost town. And I see from uh, your uh, videos that it's a really buzzy um uh, kind of metropolitan area with lots of uh, fun things to do in it um, and I'd also like to go to Mostar um, I last time I was in Mostar um, it was uh, looked after by the Spanish military we went there for the day the bridge was um, hadn't been rebuilt yet um, and it, it had uh, quite severe damage. So I'd like to go back and see what the bridge is like in Mostar. And finally, I'd like to go to Split again. Um, uh, and uh, I'd like to go to Diocletian's Palace as well, <laughs> because I used to have a, 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 a poster of Diocletian's Palace. Um, I know it's not in Bosnia, but um, uh, uh, I used to have a poster of it on my, my wall because my wall in the old factory in Gornivikov where we were based had um, 50 cal gunfire marks all the way, uh, bullet holes all the way up it. So I used the picture of Diocletian's Palace, a massive bright, big poster of it, which is obviously from a travel agency or something, to cover that to remind me <laughs> remind me of holidays in Yugoslavia. So uh, yeah, there's five for you. When you come, we're going to crack all of those. Finally, uh, I know I'm taking you, your time on this on this Sunday, but to finish off, looking back on your time here, 
and your experiences, not only at the time, but since. What advice would you give to anybody that is watching or listening to this who wants to consider going to a country that has issues, let's put it that way, and to help them? You've come, you've helped. Uh, I'm sure you've seen some things work, some things fail. And yeah, what, what, what advice would you give to anybody? Let's say an early 20s guy or girl that says, I, I want to get into doing something that helps other people in countries that aren't my own and in countries that are seriously suffering. What, what, a, what couple of granites of advice would you give them? Oh, it's very kind of you to say that I've come and have helped. I, I don't think I help very much, but that's one of the things that um, you have to remember. A, no country uh, is perfect and they all have issues. But if, if you want to specifically go to one that, that has obvious issues, then I, I'd, I'd have a think about um, about the following. I, I was very lucky in the fact that I, I got to study international development um, later on. Uh, before I did my master's, I did, I did a postgraduate diploma in international development. Um, and, uh, you know, it involved uh, uh, lots of uh, academic study of of countries like Somalia and uh, Vietnam, um, places that um, had had um, uh, quite fragile governments and, and security systems and and what have you and it all seems really overwhelming when you go to to these um to these countries or you even look at these countries and and think how could anybody make that better but but what you've got to remember is um it you might not be able to change the whole world for everybody but you can change somebody's world by just doing something small or modest for example a road into somewhere could be freedom and opportunities for employment for an entire community so it's not changed the entire political outlook of the country but it's helped that community the opening of uh, or just even having a nurse or a medic in a certain community who hasn't had one for ages will vastly improve the health and well-being of that community so you know you've got to look at it um, as as small things. It's, you know that that awful saying, how how do you eat an elephant one piece at a time? That that's kind of what it is. You you can be overwhelmed by the enormity of a country's problems and think it's never going to get any better. But it certainly won't get any better if you think that and don't go there and and do anything. So I, I would say um, it's a, a common it's a combination of all the small things that we've all done over the last. 30 years has it been that long oh yeah it has um over the last 30 years um in the balkans both people who've come in from the international community and people who've lived there stayed there people who've gone away and come back that have uh, made it what it is today um so it's everybody's little contribution so uh, i would encourage people who are thinking um along the lines of going to assist as uh, an ngo a member or a member of the military, the UN, whatever, that that's the attitude that you take certainly works for me. Martine, thank you so, so much. It's, it, it's been a real insight, um, especially for me. I think that although I haven't gone native, I hate that phrase with a vengeance, but, um, you know, I, I see things differently now. Uh, somebody said only uh, the other week, um, 
the reason, uh, and we get into discussions about things, obviously. Um, and somebody said, "Have you heard what you're saying?" And I said, well I, "Well, I well I think what I'm saying is quite sensible and normal." And they smiled and they said, "Yeah, but you're you're like us now. You're not like an international anymore." So yeah, twenty odd years here is is different. I wouldn't be anywhere else in the world, and I still feel that the job that I came to do, which was two years. Yeah, eighteen months after you left here, when I arrived here, I, I still don't think that uh, I completed the tasks that I came to do. Martin, thanks so much for your time. I hope we didn't annoy Dougal too much, because we 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 have five cats here, and they they all are vying for attention all the time. Have a nice Sunday, and and I really do hope that in twenty twenty three that you get to come here we 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 can ha- we can have a blast and i think that you're to to use a, a, a you not a very good phrase in the uk i think you're going to be totally gobsmacked when you see things on the ground here i think so too and i really look forward to it thank you for asking me to be part of this it's really nice of you that's me talking to martine mcnee about her 8 months here in bosnia back in 1997-98 i hope you found it interesting and if you did Maybe you might consider subscribing to our blog. The link is in the show notes. Or maybe buying a coffee or two. Thanks in advance. That's it for this episode. We have loads more episodes planned for this year. But in the meantime, please stay safe wherever you are listening. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you would like to support us and the production of future episodes, then please consider maybe buying us a coffee. The link to do that is in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks again and see you next time. So, that's it for this episode. Our podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. And if you like this podcast, then please do leave us a review or send us an email. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you would like to support us and the production of future episodes, then please consider maybe giving us a tip or becoming a member of our podcast family. The link to do that is in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks again for listening. We really do appreciate it. To find out more about us and where we live, why not check out our blog at anenglishmaninthebalkans.com.